Welcome back to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Casey. If you're listening to this podcast, the question of what's next is probably on your mind. But where do you start? How do you think about it? It can be very helpful to step back and get a broader perspective. And here's one way to think of it. Some see life as a three-act play. Act one is, let's say, birth through your 20s. And act two is in your 30s until roughly your 60s, which is often your most productive period professionally, and for many, also raising a family. And then following that period, there's a third act, which for many people presents a new blank canvas to explore new or long-deferred pursuits and make a difference in the lives of others. Josh Sapan is the recently retired president and CEO of AMC Networks. During his 36-year leadership of the company, including 26 as CEO, he was credited with building some of the most celebrated and groundbreaking original content in television history, including Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, and The Walking Dead. In recent years, thinking about what would be next for him, he turned his attention to another set of stories, how various people from different walks of life are creating and living their lives after their primary careers. He's the author of The Third Act, Reinventing Your Next Chapter. The book profiles 63 people who are pursuing meaningful third acts. Some are names you'll know, like Jane Fonda, Rita Moreno, and Norman Lear. But most are people like you and I, and they are inspiring stories that illustrate the wide range of opportunities people are creating to thrive and contribute in their third acts. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. It is my great pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So what was the catalyst for writing your book, The Third Act? Fairly simple. I was approaching my own inevitable third act, or whatever it might be called. And so I began to observe friends and colleagues and contemplate what I might do after working for some 48 years in corporate America and media. And that uh, gave birth to the book. You profiled 63 people who are engaged in their own third acts. What were the key themes that emerged? You know, I think the book has people who are uh, well-known, like Robert Redford, people and, and, and Alan Alda and Gloria Steinem, and it has many people who are, one has never heard of. And there is, I think, I think something thematically consistent between those who are luminaries and those who are not. And I think that it is... A, few, a couple of different things. One is curiosity. And I think a second thing I think is the ability somehow to actualize what is often resident in many people, which is a desire or a fantasy to do something. It can be socially impactful or it just can be fanciful. But they all are somehow with the craft and the capability of going to implement that which is in their heads and making it real in the world. As you mentioned, you profiled a lot of famous people. I read all those profiles. They draw your attention right away. But you had a lot of fascinating stories about the quote-unquote non-famous people who are really doing extraordinary things. What's one story you'd like to highlight? There's so many. It's a little hard with where to start. But, you know, there is, I just happened to be speaking with him very recently. Um, I don't know if you read about Paul Dillon. He is a guy, roughly my contemporary. He served in Vietnam and then was a professional and was a consultant. And, and I just was just speaking to him again recently. And he 
talked about coming back from Vietnam and really feeling incredibly unwelcome in every community and room he was in because he was in a war that was terribly unpopular. And he talked about separating the war from the warrior, the person who was in the army, and how the world didn't do that. And that's a very simple thought, but I thought it was a, an important thought. And so after his career in business and consulting, he worked to lead an incubator for veterans. And he was, I'm going to carry on too long about him, both practical about it, real in terms of dealing with a political issue and a social issue, which is, I think has been in the rearview mirror revisited, but also somewhat spiritual-ish about it and finding that which is deep in himself and in people. And so it was that combination. And I just found him in this last conversation particularly remarkable. Great story and great example. I wonder if you'd be able to share a few other examples that really illustrate those themes. Let's start with Andrea Peterson. Yeah. So she is a woman who had a pretty, I guess, normal life working like many of us. But she, if I have all my humans straight, which I hope I do, she was in a fire as a kid and had some impact on her. And then after her professional life, it is something fairly dramatic. She became a fire woman, fire person, EMT. And, you know, there she is pictured, you know, in a firefighter's outfit at above age 50. I find that somewhat remarkable and not a joke and not just a fancy. I mean, truly a contribution and something that was deep in her, but also really helps the world a bit. And that's one theme I noticed in your book and the work I do that Retirement gives people a second chance at doing something that they always wanted to do. And one that's a story that stood out to me is the comedian who became a comedian, a person who became a comedian in his 80s. Yeah, it's wild. Art Schill began stand-up at really late age. And his friend said he was funny. And, you know, it just so happens that a colleague of mine, who I worked with for some 36 years, and at company meetings, corporate America, you stand up and there are people around and, and he's very funny. I just went to his first gig at a city winery and I always knew he was good. And he, he really, he performed very well, but he killed. Great to hear. And you also had people that did very meaningful things. And one in particular that jumped out was the woman who ended up creating a museum in one of the boroughs, but it started with a bus. Yeah. You could tell about her story. I certainly, I certainly can. And I did have a chance as We've been talking about the book and, and speaking about it to, to spend more time with her. So her name is Hope Hartley, and she, born in Brooklyn, as I was, but she remembers being, she remembers the Brooklyn Children's Museum being part of her youth, and I guess a good part. And so she then went to work for Verizon and a corporate career in Verizon, and I think in the Eastern Division of Verizon. And, and she did encounter the borough of the Bronx in New York where there is no children's museum. And she began to work on the development of a children's museum, I think maybe even when she was still in her corporate gig, and then pursued it afterwards and, and was so committed. I do find this interesting. And you had spoken when we were speaking before the recording about something being iterative and people taking their lives and not having one plan and having it be rigid. So she was so committed to this that she began to have a museum before there was a museum. And I mean that there was no physical museum. She doesn't even distinguish that. She said, and so the museum was on a bus and it would tour. 
And then it was only after, must have been sort of eight years or so plus after her work at Verizon that the museum opened its physical location in the Bronx. And I'm just going to share with you, if I may, because I thought it was so lovely. So I had the privilege of being on a TV show with her and talking about what she was doing. And not only had she done something remarkable, but she was, to use common parlance, she was more than ready for prime time. And so we were then afterward, after the TV show, we went to the, quote, green room. And I did comment. I said, well, she first she said, my text, my husband is crying at home. He just texted me, you were wonderful to watch her do this work. But then I did say to her, I said, you were really like, really good. And she said, well, I not only did that, but when I retired, I took acting lessons. It's not in the book. I took acting classes. And so I've been doing summer stock. I don't know if you know what that is, but touring with plays every summer. And I went home and I mentioned it to my wife and she said, oh, wait a minute. I've seen her in two different commercials. One is in, as we say in the media business, heavy rotation. So she was not quite a ringer, but she was doing two different things. And one more, you could call it purposeful or of high social impact and the other more personal, but all that. And man, she just said, I'm going to do it until the gas tank is empty. And she was just, uh, she's lovely and rare. I happened to see see you on, and her on Morning Joe that day. And she did come across very, very well. And, and it's yeah. interesting to hear the backstory now. Yeah, it was, she had sort of a, the word, it's not an impolite word, ringer. She was like a pro. And and I was watching her thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. How did this happen? Where are we? It was fun. And if I could, one more story briefly, because this one also got my attention, Donzella Washington. Yeah, so can I ask you what caught your attention about it, do you mind? If sure, I so you- I'm a serial education person. I went back to school for master's degrees three times in my career while working, and once in my third act. So I'm always curious about people who return to school at a later age, because I think it, this lifelong learning thing is very real. And I'm also very big on perseverance. I was a marathon runner, so I got injured. Oh. And so, so perseverance is another one of my big, big themes. And that's what, that's what caught my attention. About I it. see. Yes. Yeah. Well, she, so her story is she went, she's the oldest graduate, I hope I have my facts right, of Texas A&M. And she graduated at the tender age of 80. And that's wild. It's, I don't know how else to say it because, you know, occasionally I find myself at a university too recently and the average age is the average age. It's not surprising. And so I just think it takes the right, it's a fancy word, but it takes courage. I think it just takes courage to be older than most by 50 years and to be subject to the same regime and to have in a certain sense, vulnerabilities about learning and needing to graduate and pass tests. Because I've contemplated a bit of it myself, not university as much as what I might want to study. And I find it, I'm intimidated, the notion of it, and would probably want to do it more in private than in public. So I will say kudos to you and kudos to Donzella Washington. And when I did my third master's, I I completed it at 60. But in my graduating class, one of my classmates, also she's in New York City, was 78 at the time. So I was I was a mere piker, and and there Is were, there were a couple actually yes, few few of them that were that were in their their 70s, maybe maybe older. Is that right? Yes, I mm-hmm. thought I thought it's really. I just I went to the University of Wisconsin, and I don't have three advanced degrees. I barely have a BA. So as a friend of mine says, I was on the seven year. I squeezed. I squeezed four years into seven. So there's that. But 
when I was at the University of Wisconsin, I was back there for a particular seminar. I didn't observe, and I actually was in a class. I was actually teaching a class in communications, and, and there wasn't anyone, I don't think, over the age by my observation of 30 or so. So I'm a little surprised to hear you say that there were that many people. Yes, mostly younger people, certainly 20s and 30s, but there were actually a fair number of mid-career people and later career people, So, and uh-huh. certainly people you know, much older than, than I was, which was impressive to see. And I think now you see the universities, many of them, Stanford has had it for many years, Harvard has one, Notre Dame started one, University of Minnesota have these third yeah. act career type programs, one to two years. And they're obviously at the high end, but I think there are some that will start to add them that are more accessible to more to more people. Because I think lifelong learning is of great interest to many people. You know, actually, you know, I, I was only glancingly aware of a couple. You mentioned one, and a colleague of mine went to one, and another colleague went to another, and they were the, the fancier schools. And then I did come upon the fact that University of Chicago is starting one, that Notre Dame has one, and it does seem like a great development and higher ed for more reasons than can be named. Absolutely. And so you you recently retired and you're creating your own third act. And one thing that appeals to many people that I work with is mentoring. And I know that's something you're getting involved in at Columbia Business School. What do you see as the mutual benefits that can come from mentoring? Yeah, it was a bit of an experiment. I was asked not having an MBA to do that at Columbia. And I just immediately warmed to it because I just thought that it would be a nice thing to do. And and I also was through a friend introduced to an organization in New York called something called the Fortune Society, which is a remarkable organization that does more than mentoring. It provides a whole range of services to people who've been incarcerated and it helps them adjust in multiple ways. There's a residential facility and there's instruction and so I've been also going out to the facility in Queens and doing, I hesitate to call it mentoring. It's my attempt at mentoring. But I will say, I just, I, I have found it to be, I, the truth is, I hope it's good for them. It's definitely good for me. And I really don't know if I'm helping them enough or perfectly. I am trying. It is spectacular to be around people whose day that day is entirely different than mine and whose frame of reference is different, either a student or someone who's been in prison for 26 years. And I'm listening to what their challenges are in life, work, world, and how they see the world. And I don't want to get syrupy and say it's really inspiring, but it is. And it also is. And you mentioned something earlier when we were speaking about doing the practice or doing the exercises. And it does seem to me, at least for me, it's somewhat hard to get out of one's frame of reference. And you could call it bubble. And doing so as a consequence of relating to someone when you're attempting to sort of help is it's darn good medicine for the soul. Well said. Curious, what surprised you most about being retired so far? I think I had contemplated, you work in corporate America, so you're very familiar with it. And so you you wake up and it all comes at you as if it's rolling downhill. Generally, depending upon the nature of the job, but you had a big corporate job, it's not the good things that happen in the morning. You wake up to the issues and the problems of the crisis. And so, and that can be energizing. And it's a community of people on a mission and as well as for profit. And then uh, when it stops, it stops. And so you, just to say it, you developed a portfolio of activities that you undertake that's related to it 
including education, including training, including coaching, including podcasting. And so I was conceptually prepared to do a portfolio of different things, but I don't know that I was, that I, that my muscles were in good shape. And I had had so-called extracurricular activities that interested me in putting not-for-profit boards and other things that I'd done, but I don't think my so-called muscles in that regard were very well developed, nor necessarily are they right now. So that, that's that not a surprise because I expected it, but nonetheless a surprise. And so being energetic and active, and sorry to use the word proactive, as opposed to reactive, is a different muscle. And I think it's an imperative for me. Of, and I do th- observe it in the people in the book. I observe each one of them really, truly being like the people I know who are entrepreneurs in business. Don't get up, go to the door of the company, walk in and have the job occur. They start it all themselves. And I've always admired that and their ability to do that. And I'm not doing that, but the ability to be willful and to have that sort of initiative is something that I admire. And I don't think I had quite the full training for. Many people listening want to make a difference or they want to give back or they want to pursue something that they've always dreamed about doing. Very similar to a lot of people that you profiled. Once they will have the freedom and time after they retire. But I noticed sometimes there's something that holds them back from getting started. Based on the profiles and your own experience, what advice do you have on how people can get started? I really would defer to you as sort of someone who's probably had more experience with that, in, in all seriousness. I mean, you really have. I can say what, I, what occurs to me, but I would not offer it up as necessarily terribly studied, schooled, or proven advice. So it's just the next person on the street saying, assuming one has enough means and not and flexibility in every sense, meaning physical flexibility and, and means to do something different. I think you referenced a book that I need to go read that the entire world knows except for me. And I don't know the scripture, but I can say for me, a plan of some sort is good. Action and momentum is good. And then being a bit iterative of it is good and revising the plan. Now, by the way, I worked in business, so maybe that's the nature of what you do. But without it, I think I might float. So if I were offering advice to a a friend, and I would only say it to a friend because I don't have any initials after my name, that would suggest I should be listened to. I would say, maybe write a few things down, write a plan a bit. And if you have sufficient means and and capability, make it as specific as possible and then act on it and, and watch the piece of paper or the digital screen and watch yourself not having done it and then see if you can get motivated to do it and then try it. And by the way, I I can give you my own example, which is I did, this is a silly one, but like Andrea, I decided that I would volunteer and I went to the local police department and I said, I'd like to volunteer. And they said, what can you do? And the honest answer is not too much. And the notion of EMT came up and of course I'm not trained. And they said, well, you can drive. And I said, yep. They said, how about driving an ambulance? And I said, yes. And I'm going to give that a whirl. It sounds dramatic. It was very serendipitous, though. There was not a big plan. Anyway, so I took all the physical stuff and I passed that. And then they sent me the material. And then I went to get the physical training with a young man. And so I got behind the wheel and we did our training session. And he said, how are you feeling? And I said, fine. How do you think I'm doing? And he said, well, you're driving well. And then he said, well, uh, flip on. And I'm not good with buttons. 
I was never the guy you would go to to fix anything. And he said, well, okay, so flip on the radio to call the police, flip on the radio to call the hospital, flip on the radio to call transportation, and then put on these alarms. And I actually thought, I'm going to recuse myself from this because I don't think that's my thing. So anyway, I honestly, it felt like not a terrible defeat, but it just didn't work. And I didn't feel capable. And I was, I took the manual home and I started to study it. And I thought it's just not happening. And so I went on to the Fortune Society and found something where I could use my mouth. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up and I appreciate you sharing it. It's a great example of be willing to try things, be open-minded, but know, know what's right and be willing to discover what's, what's right for you. And of course, your context where all that is happening is New York City. Which is well, awesome. like, yeah, case, like, just full disclosure, it was actually not the heart of the city. It was outside the city where, yeah. because if it was the city, I'm not even sure I would have put myself up yeah. for yes. it. So it, it was not there. It was actually a place with thinner population and, and a little more ease because actually I would never have even gotten to step one. But thanks for the uh, encouragement. <laughs> Fair enough. But a great, great example of, of being willing to try some things. Some, some will take off and others really get you closer to what, what are going to be the right things for you. I really appreciate Josh sharing your experiences and your examples from the book. I found a lot of the examples in your book, and I'm sure many people will, very inspiring and just a great source of ideas for people thinking about what's next. Well, actually, I, I'm flattered that you say that. And I had some help with the book and, and coming from a pro who has coached as many people as you have, that's a really a, it's a very nice compliment. And I thank you so much for it. Best wishes. Thanks again, Josh. Okay, take care. So what are some insights and actions you can add to your list following this conversation today? Here are three ideas that I came up with. Number one, start with curiosity. When you're thinking about what could be in your third act, really look at the possibilities with an open mind. What things draw your attention? What do you get excited about? What's something in your past that you used to enjoy or used to be passionate about that maybe you put aside? Is it time to revisit that? Start with curiosity. Number two, talk to people and start doing some experimenting. This is always top of mind for me, but especially so because in our Design Your Life small group coaching programs, so we have two groups running now, and we're at this phase where people are engaged in prototyping interviews with people who are doing something today that they might like to do in their third act. The 63 people in the third act book really have all different stories. They're doing very different things. There are some common themes. You can get a lot of ideas from them. Same thing with talking to other people in your life, but who are doing interesting things in their third act. And as Josh talked about, there's a lot of value in trying things out before you get overcommitted. Make sure that you're giving it a shot to see if something's right for you. If it's not, move on to the next thing. There are a lot of possibilities. Number three, set a plan, a direction, but revise along the way. I often revert back to something that I learned from Dave Evans, co-author of the book, Designing Your Life, that you don't really have to have it all figured out in advance. You can start in a direction and iterate your way forward. And I think that's great advice here. Set a direction, set a path, but be willing to be open-minded and revise. Thanks for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. You'll find a few other episodes in the show notes that you can link to. There are interviews in three cases with people who are profiled in the book, The Third Act, but they were on our podcast and you might be interested in hearing their stories. Thanks again for listening.